Goodness, thank you. Good morning. Uh, my name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And I already mentioned that we're going to be uh, kind of starting today with uh, one of the great Richard Curtis films, Four, Wedding and a Fun- Four Weddings and a Funeral. And I hate to be the one to tell you this, but it's almost 30 years old. Um, so, yep, came out in 1993. So, uh, and that, that will be 30 years ago next year. So, yeah, good morning. Uh, I'm sorry to attack you uh, first thing in the morning. But uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral is a terrific movie. Uh, that is about four weddings and a funeral. Uh, it's actually this, you know, disparate group of people that are all kind of tangentially connected and the story flows in and around and through their lives. And again, it's this real kind of fun slice of life sort of thing. And a couple of years ago, I think in 2019, right before uh, the COVID pandemic started, uh, Hulu remade it. So it's this nice 10 episode series and it's the same thing. It's this, it's this group of friends, not all of them even all know each other. And they, they kind of go, uh, you know, the, the 10 episode series weaves through their lives and brings them together. And again, there are four weddings and a funeral in the course of the series. And it might sound weird, but probably my favorite scene in the whole show is the funeral. Uh, and I won't tell you why because of spoilers, but it's, it's just terrific. It's, it does that whole, like, you cry and then you laugh, and it's all kind of there, and all of those feelings are, are earned and earnest. And so, you know, it's, it's just really, really good. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, you really should, uh, because you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about there. But um, I was thinking about that uh, because it probably sounds strange, but one of my favorite things about being a pastor is getting to do funerals. And yeah, I know, it makes me sound like a psychopath, right? Like, who, who enjoys funerals? And it's not that I enjoy the funeral, right? Like, it's not, it's not like other people's grief makes me feel good or something like that, right? Not at all. Quite the opposite, in fact. It's just that I find it to be a tremendous honor to be invited into a family's grief and to be someone who gets to sort of shepherd them through that and help them grieve well together and, and help them make all of those arrangements and... and you know, build out the funeral service so that it's something that honors the person whose life we're remembering and celebrating. I just, I just find that to be a really holy and, and really special thing that I think if you're not a pastor, you don't really get invited into in the same way. And so uh, I know it sounds weird anytime people are like, oh, what do you like about being a pastor? I don't usually lead with, you know, funerals. Um, they're the best part. Um, but, but it really is true. Like, and, and, I mean, for, for a similar reason, wedding, weddings are, are another similar joy, though I think it's more normal to say you enjoy weddings, right? Um, that's a safe thing to say in a, in a public room. Weddings are great. No one usually argues with you. Uh, so, so yeah, weddings and funerals, they're these, they're these markers. They're, there's a reason that people all over the world and every culture all throughout time have some version of a wedding ceremony, some version of funeral rites, uh, because they're ways that we mark our time and our reality, the way we mark our lives and we celebrate and mourn and all of these kinds of things. And uh, again, when we ha- as, as, a, as a pastor, getting to participate in those is, is deeply meaningful. And, and I want to say that because we're going to take kind of a weird pivot because in the passage that we're going to be exploring together today, God actually commands his prophet, Jeremiah, not to participate in weddings and funerals, not to do those things together. And, I mean, I want you to try to imagine if, you know, a pastor refused to do a funeral or refused to do a wedding, right? Or if, if, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a wedding or a funeral or something where a certain family member chose not to come, said they're not going to participate, right? That's, that's usually a big red flag that something's, something's wrong, that there's a, a fracture or a break in relationship. 
Uh, and again, it's, it happens in those spaces because those are the spaces where as a, as a group of people, we celebrate and mourn together. And so when, when there's a fracture in relationships, it often shows up in those spaces. So we're going to be looking at uh, the prophet Jeremiah today. We're going to be looking at his story in this space where God gave him some uh, shocking, provocative, and painful instructions, uh, specifically as a prophet. And uh, if you're in the live chat, you've already seen this. Uh, James warned you that it's going to be a heavy day. It is going to be a heavy day. Um, we're going to talk about some really difficult stuff. Uh, that And, and again, they were hard for Jeremiah. They're going to be difficult for us. Um, but we are moving through uh, this section of Jeremiah. And even though it's heavy, even though it's hard, it is still grounded in hope and in hopefulness and in the conviction that we've seen since we started this series that uh, God will never let the worst thing be the last thing. And so even though these things are hard today, even though this will be difficult, even though I think it's probably going to, to bring up some uh, thoughts and feelings for you the same way it has for me in preparing this, and you know we've been building this, this gathering together out, uh, it's all grounded in hope. And so uh, we can talk about these things, we can face these things, we can process through what these things look like in our own lives today together because we know that God loves us and God is with us. And so uh, even as we talk about some heavy stuff, we're going to keep returning to song because song helps ground us in the promises of God and, and in God's attitude and posture towards us. So uh, before we go any further, I want to turn it over to Nathan and to the worship team uh, for exactly that. Uh, so if you are in the building with us, I'm going to invite you to stand. If you're a virtual with us, you can stand or, or whatever is comfortable for you. Uh, and l- let's, uh, let's worship together. Anyway, welcome back, folks. Uh, this fall, we are in a series called Black Sheep, uh, What to Do When Faith Makes You Not Fit. And uh, we are in the book of Jeremiah for a very specific reason. We have entered into a season in the last few years where a, a, a growing number of Christians are having the experience of feeling like outsiders. And it's not, not feeling like outsiders from the culture around us or from the larger world, which, which does happen, and Jesus tells us will happen, um, but it's actually feeling like outsiders when it comes to the larger church in America. Um, we look at the way a lot of the church is, is going po- uh, politically and socially and the things that the church chooses to take a stand for and the things the church chooses to, to, to remain silent on. And, and we just feel increasingly like that doesn't match who we are and who we, who we are because of our choice to follow Jesus. And so we end up feeling like the outsider, like the black sheep, like the one who just doesn't fit. Uh, and again, it's not despite our faith, it's, it's often because of our faith and our faithfulness. And so during this series, we've been in the book of Jeremiah, which is written by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was born in the decades leading up to an event we call the Exile, which is when the Babylonian Empire conquered the southern nation of Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed God's temple, and forcibly deported most of the cultural leaders, the priests, the nobility, you know, the, the lawyers, the scribes, all, you know, the, what we'd call like the politicians, right? Uh, deported them all to Babylon and left uh, basically a, a country with no infrastructure and no leadership in its wake. Jeremiah was called by God at a young age, we saw that the first week, right, uh, to warn God's people that this would happen. Because as the Babylonian Empire grew, as they became more and more and more of a threat, God's people responded not by being more faithful to God and putting their trust in God, but by making alliances with foreign powers. 
by worshiping their gods and by living the way those other countries lived. Uh, they thought that if they could you know, make a big enough alliance with enough other countries, they could be a big, big enough to keep Babylon from conquering them. And again and again and again, Jeremiah was sent by God to warn the people that that won't work, that all they need is to remain faithful to the God of their covenant, right? The God that liberated them from Egypt, that preserved them through the wilderness, that established them in the land where they are now. Uh, if they would remain faithful, God would remain faithful to them, and yet they didn't. And so uh, because Jeremiah was constantly warning the people, he, uh, he came across as kind of a bummer, right? He was not particularly pop popular, was not getting a lot of the party invites, you know, right? Because um, no one wanted him around as a constant reminder that they were being unfaithful and that uh, God was not happy with them and that God was, was going to bring judgment. Of course, it turns out Jeremiah was right. And Jeremiah, probably because he was so unpopular, is not one of the ones that got deported to Babylon. He is one of the ones that got left behind. And so if, if, you re, if you study Jeremiah's whole life, you see someone who not only warned of the impending catastrophe, but actually lived through it with the people and then went from, uh, went from a harbinger of doom to a comforter. Someone who comforted the people and promised them that just because this catastrophe had happened, God had in fact not abandoned them and that there was hope. Uh, so this is a good place for us if we feel too like black sheep today. If we feel like people who are looking at the state of the church and looking at the state of God's faithful in our, in our nation and seeing that too often they, they privilege power and position over faithfulness, uh, and we wonder how much longer this can last. That's exactly where Jeremiah was. And so we began... Uh, we began by grounding all of this in a deep love for God. We saw that, that that's what Jeremiah began with. And that's how we, that's how we, uh, we too must uh, begin if we are to be faithful in this time. Uh, next, we looked at the reality of idolatry. We used that, um, that uh, image of the leaky cisterns, right? The leaky rain catchers and, and, and how people tend to look for sustenance and salvation from things that can never provide that. And they're like people who are trying to build a leaky rain catcher with a, a, a river, a freshwater right behind them, right? Um, and then last week, Ashley talked to us about uh, our natural response, I think, when we are confronted with the reality of God's goodness and our faithlessness is shame. And yet that what God, what God intends by these messages is not to shame us, but to liberate us, to, to pick us up out of our shame and help us to stand up in faith and, and to continue to be God's people. So today's message, uh, I'm not going to lie, this one, is, uh, this one is shocking, this one is provocative, it, it comes across just as uh, very strange. Um, and, and yeah, I think, you'll, I think you'll probably find it as disturbing as I do. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Jeremiah 16. If you grab one of the Bibles out of the back, that's on page 458, and you can feel free to keep that uh, Bible if you want. Uh, as you're turning to Jeremiah 16, the, the image that I think perfectly captures what today is all about is the This Is Fine dog. Do you know the dog I'm talking about? This dog up here? Right? This one, you've seen this, right? Probably. This dog was originally drawn by a cartoonist named Casey Green in 2013 in his webcomic Gun Show. Okay? And it very quickly became representative of how people feel, you know, about all of it. <laughs> right? Uh, you have this dog sitting in this burning house just sipping coffee and saying, this is fine. And uh, it's funny because the dog is clearly in denial, right? Uh, there, there's, there's a plea hidden sort of in this comic where we want to say to the dog, uh, get up, leave, or, you know, at least do something. Is there a fire extinguisher under your sink or something you can do? But the dog's just sitting there sipping coffee, right? Going about business as usual, but when the house is on fire, 
business is not usual, so you can't pretend business is usual. That image is one that I think will help us understand what's going on in this text today, because Jeremiah very much is trying to alert God's people that all is not fine, all is not well, all is not good, and yet they are continuing to go about their lives as though everything is okay. Uh, so I want to read the first four verses uh, because there, it begins with a very, uh, a very difficult challenge for Jeremiah, and I want to kind of hang out there for a minute before we move on to the rest of the chapter. So in verse 1, Jeremiah tells us that the Lord gave me another message. He said, do not get married or have children in this place, for this is what the Lord says about the children born here in this city and about their mothers and their fathers. They will die from terrible diseases. No one will mourn them or bury them, and they will lie scattered on the ground like manure. They will die from war and famine, and their bodies will be food for the vultures and the wild animals. Uh, not great, right? Not great. God warns Jeremiah not to marry, not to have kids because of this impending catastrophe. God says, uh, the more people we put into the world right now, the worse it will be for all of them because they're going to be destroyed by Babylon and it's going to be this messy, ugly you know, thing. And when I first read this, I couldn't help but think of all of the people I know who are choosing to do something similar. They're choosing not to get married. They're choosing not to have children uh, because of climate change, because of the way the world is going, because people look at the future and what they see is hopelessness. And they say, I don't, I don't feel like it's responsible to bring children into a world that's going the way our, our world is going. There's this, deep, um, there's this deep despair. That's not, it's, not a, it's not at the surface, right? It's, uh, these, these people are often happy, mostly well-adjusted people. But when, when you get down underneath that, there's this sort of like core despair and hopelessness that the world is not getting better. The world is not going to a good place. The world is, is actually getting worse. And so they don't want to bring life into a world like that. I understand that impulse. Uh, and, and I think before we go further, because if we don't get this right, it's going to make what comes next even more difficult. Uh, I think we need to understand that uh, all of what Jeremiah is doing is grounded not in a hopelessness and in a despair, but in, but in a final hope. As I said earlier, uh, Jeremiah has a conviction that, that God will not allow the worst thing to be the last thing. So yes, this time is coming because Israel will not repent, because they will, they will continue to be faithless, that Babylon will destroy them. Right? That is, that is, and, we, and, and again, we know that Jeremiah was right. We know that that is exactly what happened. Uh, the accounts in the Bible of Babylon's conquest of Judah align very well with what he warned was going to happen. Okay? It wasn't rocket science to figure out what happened when Babylon conquered you. They could look around and see a plenty of other times that it happened. Right? And so, so that's what happened. Um, and yet, uh, as we'll see by the time we get to the end of the day, this is all grounded not in a despair, not in God has abandoned you and there is no hope, but in a conviction that even when we are faithless, and even when God relents and gives us what we think we want, which is a world without God, even then, God does not close the door on newness and on possibility and on repentance. There's always hope. Uh, that, that's, that's the fundament of the good news, right? When, when Jesus, that's why, that's why we have Easter Sunday and we don't just stop on Good Friday, right? Because the worst thing is never the last thing. 
because we believe in resurrection and restoration. And so uh, I, I want to pause before we go further and move back into worship because uh, I think it's important for us to hear the reality of Jeremiah's words, but then also rest in the conviction that the worst thing is never the last thing. And that even as we are trying to take seriously our lives in this present day in a world that seems like it's not getting better, that faith means that we always have some kind of hope that God is bringing new life and working new things. So uh, before we go further in Jeremiah, I want to invite you to stand with me again, and I want to turn it back over to the worship team. You know, imagine how shocking Jeremiah's announcement that, that God told him not to get married or have children would be in our day. And uh, it was only uh, doubly, triply more so in his day, uh, where that, was, uh, that wasn't a choice people made ever, you know. And as, as shocking as it is, I think it's framed by what comes next. And so I, I want to read the next few verses with you and then uh, observe a couple of points that I think will help us understand what, what is happening in this text. So beginning in verse 5, Jeremiah goes on to say, This is what the Lord says. Do not go to funerals to mourn and show sympathy for these people, for I have removed my protection and my peace from them. I have taken away my unfailing love and mercy. Both the great and the lowly will die in this land. No one will bury them or mourn for them. Their friends will not cut themselves in sorrow or shave their heads in sadness. No one will offer a meal to comfort those who mourn for the dead, not even at the death of a mother or a father. No one will send a cup of wine to console them. And do not go to their feasts and parties. Do not eat and drink with them at all, for this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. In your very own lifetime, before your very eyes, I will put an end to the happy singing and the laughter in this land. The joyful voices of bridegrooms and brides will no longer be heard. So when you tell the people all these things, they will ask, why has the Lord decreed such terrible things against us? Oh, what have we done to deserve such treatment? What is our sin against the Lord our God? Okay, so uh, a few things here. First of all, back in verse 5, I want to highlight some words that, uh, I, that would have been very important when the people heard them in the original Hebrew. So uh, first there, I have removed my protection and peace from them. The protection and peace, what the NLT renders there, it's actually the Hebrew word shalom, which uh, you probably have heard before, right? It means peace. Uh, but it's, again, it's not just like an absence of conflict. Shalom is that, uh, that peacefulness that God created the world for. It's what we see at the end of the seven days of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, where everything is in its right place and everything is working together in harmony and everything is fulfilling its creative purposes. This is the peace that comes from God. When we pass peace together uh, in worship, this is the peace that we're extending and the peace we're participating in. And God says, I'm, I'm removing that. Uh, the next is that, that word, uh, that phrase, unfailing love. Again, this, this is actually a word we just don't really have a good English equivalent for, and so it's kind of fun to see a bunch of different transla English translations and see all of the different ways that it gets translated, but it's the Hebrew word kesed. Um, you're actually supposed to, like chesed, but I'm just going to say kesed because I don't want to spit on you. Um, so kesed, uh, and it is, the word means a, the obligations that you have to another person because you're in a covenant with them. Okay, so we, uh, the, these would sort of be like legal conditions 
today, the things that a legal contract might obligate you to. Um, but but it's, it's more than that because, you know, a covenant, uh, you know, I have, I have a cell phone contract with AT&T, so I have obligations to them. And they have obligations to me, right? Um, but I have no relationship with AT&T as they make abundantly clear when I call customer service, right? Um, shout out to AT&T, you're the best. Uh, <laughs> A covenant is something deeper than that, right? It's something more than that. And yet, in the ancient world, when you made a covenant with someone else, when you entered into a covenant, there were what we would today probably call legal obligations. And that's kesed. So anywhere in the scriptures that uh, God talks about God's unfailing love or uh, faithfulness is sometimes how it gets translated, but it's the idea that because God has entered into a covenant with God's people, there are certain things that God is obligated to, like provision, protection, care, you know, this kind of stuff. And here God is saying, I, I'm taking that away. I, I'm no longer fulfilling my end of the covenant, okay? And then the last thing is that word mercy there. This often gets translated compassion, um, but this is more this is more of the emotional side of the covenant, right? These are the these are the 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 fun feelings, like the feelings of love and care that accompany a covenant, right? So it it has again, whereas I have no particular feelings one way or another towards AT and T the vast majority of the time, right? Uh, towards my wife, I have uh, lots of feelings, right? Because we are in a covenant, not just a contract. And so this is the same kind of thing where where in a, in a covenant there are what we might call legal obligations, but there are also like the emotional or the relational connection, and that's those, those two, kesed and, the, and compassion, are the two things that are going on in there, and God is saying they're both gone. I'm withdrawing them. So, so what we're seeing here is God withdrawing completely from the covenant that God made with God's people at Sinai, right? This is the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston tablets, right? That whole thing. God is saying, I'm done. I'm, I'm withdrawing everything, my, my commitment, my compassion, and even my peace. I'm taking those things away. And that sounds incredibly harsh to us. At least it does to me. Until I remember that the people, according to Jeremiah, as we've seen, the people have been uh, not living up to their end of the covenant for decades. For decades, they have been worshiping other gods. They have been looking elsewhere besides God, uh, Yahweh, the God of the covenant, for protect, protection, provision, for comfort, uh, right? They, they've, been, they've been offering lip service to God, maybe, through songs, through prayers, maybe attending sacrifices at the temple. Maybe they've been doing those things. But in their lives, their lives reflect that they're, as, as other prophets say, that their hearts are far from God, that they are offering neither the kesed of the covenant nor the compassion of the covenant. And so what we're actually seeing here in Jeremiah is God throwing up God's hands and saying, fine, have it your way. I've spent decades, arguably centuries, right, bending over backwards, fulfilling my end of the covenant when you have persisted in your faithlessness. And you have told me time and time and time again by your actions that you want nothing to do with me as your God. That you would rather live into the image of the gods of these nations around you. That you would rather trust them and their ways for your provision and your protection. You would rather become the kind of people that these gods create. So fine, have it your way. 
and God is washing God's hands. And the, maybe the most shocking thing about this entire chapter is when the people are like, oh, why is God so mad? What, what do you mean God's taken away everything? Why, why would God do that? You can almost imagine Jeremiah pulling his hair out and going, what? <laughs> what do you mean, what do you mean? <laughs> right? Uh, it, is, it is staggering, it's shocking that the people are so oblivious to their own idolatry. This is God's last resort. And so friends, I, I don't know. Uh, sorry, so that, that's the first thing, right? We, we're seeing this. The, the other thing is this, where, where God is telling Jeremiah, not only is he not to marry or have kids, but he's also now no longer to attend funerals, no longer to attend weddings. And God says, because there is a time coming when they won't have funerals, right? The very infrastructure of their culture will be destroyed. And so there will be no societal mechanism in place to, to gather people. No, you know, today it would be like the funeral homes and the pastors and like all the machinery that goes into work when, when someone passes away to, to provide it. He's like, that's not going to be. So people are just going to not, not have funerals. And there's going to be a time when there will be no more brides and bridegrooms because, again, the, everything that makes the country work and makes the everyday life and the business as usual go is going to be gone. And so now, in the present, Jeremiah, I want you to withdraw from these things. I want you to quit pretending it's business as usual like the people are because they're just going about their business. Funerals are times of fasting, right? Times when we lament, times when we grieve. Weddings are times of feasting, when we celebrate and when we rejoice together. And so God is essentially telling the prophet, no fast, no feast, right? Withdraw from these things because when you do, you are a sign to the people that I have withdrawn from them. You are a warning to the people that it is not business as usual and you cannot continue to pretend that it is. This is a time for repentance, and confession, not a time to sip your coffee while the, the country's on fire. So I don't know. I mean, as I was preparing this message, I was trying to, trying to imagine, what do we say, you know, what does no fast, no feast look like today? Right? What does it mean, really, to withdraw in the ways that Je God has commanded Jeremiah to? And, and I know, I know a, a number of us have come to Catalyst from other churches because you felt like you had to withdraw. You felt like in order to continue to be faithful to God, you could no longer worship where you were worshiping. You could no longer worship among a people who were going about business as usual when it was anything but. And I, I just want to tell you that uh, Jeremiah knows your pain. Jesus knows your pain. I know a lot of us here uh, have lost relationships, uh, family relationships, friend, long-time friend relationships, because we could no longer pretend that it was business as usual as we watch these people go further and further and further uh, towards conspiracy theories and hate speech and all of those kinds of things that are so far from the way of Jesus, and we just couldn't, we couldn't continue down that path with them, so we had to withdraw, and that's painful. And I just want to tell you, uh, Jeremiah understands that pain. God understands that pain. To be faithful in a faithless world means that we have to refuse to normalize idolatry. That we have to refuse to go about business as usual when it's anything but. 
And there's nothing that I can say that makes that easy or that makes that safe or that makes it uh, something that we can do sort of with half measures. Uh, so, so what I would prefer to do instead is invite you to the table this morning because uh, this is the place where Jesus gathers us, uh, the faithful, to remember who he is and to celebrate his way in a world that seems to have forgotten his way. Uh, before we come to the table, I'm going to ask you some questions and give you some space to reflect prayerfully on them. And uh, these questions are all geared around trying to help you think through your relationships, think through the spaces that you're in. Uh, and it's okay if you don't know the answer to these questions. These can be questions you take with you into prayer throughout this week. Um, I know this is a hard message. Uh, I know it's a hard topic. And so I don't expect it to be something we can tie a bow on in 25 minutes or so. Um, but I, I want to I give you space to prayer, uh, prayerfully consider these questions. And then I want to invite you to the table. Uh, so here's the first question. Where has God led me to withdraw from relationships or spaces in order to be faithful? Now, where in my week, just thinking, I think of a, a typical week, where do I encounter idolatry? Where do I encounter people who claim the name of Jesus but don't seem to live the way Jesus lives? Now, where am I trying to pretend everything is normal despite God's leading? Are there relationships or spaces where the Spirit has been pressing on you that things are not okay, that you've just been trying to ignore that prompting? Finally, how is God calling me to faithfulness in this next week? What is the next right thing that the Spirit is inviting me to do?
pray together. God, you have gathered us today that we might hear this provocative announcement from Jeremiah that you commanded that he withdraw from feasts and fasts, that he withdraw from the normal rhythms of life of his people as a sign that you were withdrawing, that you were giving them over to what they wanted. We confess that this is a, this is a scary image for us. Uh, and we, we pray that you would give us eyes to see as we go into our week where we are trying to pretend that business as usual despite your call to withdraw from that. We come to your table this morning and uh, we come as a people who uh, admits our confusion, admits our fear, admits our anxiety about what this could look like. And we pray that as we receive this meal, that is at once a grieving of your death and a celebration of the life you give us, that you would invite us yet again to be your people and make us into a people who can be a sign of your love and your welcome in the world around us. We offer these prayers now and we approach your table in the name of your son, Jesus. The night Jesus was betrayed, he shared this meal with his disciples. And at that meal, he broke bread and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body broken for you, take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, eat and drink. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we would do, we remember Jesus's death until he returns. Jeremiah tells us that a time is coming, says the Lord, when people who are taking an oath will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who rescued the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. Instead, they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the people of Israel back to their own land and from the land of the north and from all the countries to which he had exiled them. For I will bring them back to the land that I gave their ancestors." Jeremiah grew up worshiping the God who liberated them from Egypt. That's how God was known. That's what God was famous for. And yet here, Jeremiah promises that what God is going to do on the heels of the exile will be something so much greater that instead of being known as the God who liberated from Egypt, he will be the God who rescues from exile. The powerful promise that even in the face of the people's ultimate faithlessness, even when God says, I'm withdrawing from the covenant, God doesn't actually withdraw that far. God stays close enough so that when the people turn and repent, God is faithful to welcome them home. So Catalyst, would you go knowing that this is the kind of God that we serve, the God who is never far from us, that if we will only turn and cry out, God will meet us and lift us up and liberate us. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week.